No, wait, you skipped the sixth key. This makes no goddamn sense. Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash Club. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode 12, The Falorian Candidate. Written by Nogo Landau and David Reed. Directed by Joshua Butler. IMDb gave this a 9.1. The synopsis says, the political situation in Fillory comes to a head. Julia makes amends. Alice makes a confession. Uh, more like Alice is forced into a confession. Yeah. So a lot of things happened. The group now has all of their keys. They know they're headed to the castle at the end of the world, which is where they need to go to get magic back, but there's going to be some other shit going on there. And apparently the world is flat in Fillory. Why do you say that? <laughs> if it's a circle, there's no end to the world. So, oh, you know. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Fillory had its first democratic election, which brought up some good relationship stuff between Marco and Elliot, Elliot and Fenn that we'll definitely get into. And it allowed Josh to shine. Because, you know, he's good at parties, he's good at planning and getting people together. So he was a valuable asset in this episode. Yeah, this is a positive way that he could channel that orchestrating. So much happened this episode. It's the second to last, so you know, like every show we watch, there's a lot that goes into that one particular episode. There were some things that I would like to have seen stretched out. Like, I think the whole election could have been drawn out to two episodes. I think it would have been interesting to see Tick Pickwick and Elliot go at it. That would have been fun. I 100% agree. I was having such mixed feelings throughout the episode that some areas I wanted more room to breathe, such as the election. And I think back to the past three episodes where I was saying, man, we could have really used more than a two-second scene in Fillory with Margot and Elliot if it had just been a little bit elongated to start telling that story. So some of the conclusions felt quickly gone through in this penultimate episode, whereas other areas I was expecting more. Knowing that we only have one episode left, I thought we would have some of the things more wrapped up, and I'm worried about how they're going to get to it all in episode 13. Well, we will for sure have some cliffhangers, but something that I've come to terms with, with the magicians, that I've complained, maybe that's the word, about in the past, is that the big boss normally gets killed or taken out very quickly. So I am accepting that something like similar to that will happen. It'll be very fast. Oh, see, I have the exact opposite feelings. I think they're going to do something different here where we do get to this castle at the end of the world. We meet the next baddie, but it's really left very open until oh, season four. Yeah, you're right about that. I don't think they're going to have time, at least. I would hope not. Do you think we'll still be left in the dark if magic came back as well? Ooh, I'd be shocked if they went a whole nother season when the entire premise of season three was to get it back without knowing yeah. one way or the other what the answer is. I have a feeling we're going to get it back. It's just a lot of other bad things are going to come with it. There has been this ongoing debate as to whether or not humans should have magic, if we deserve it, if that needs to be regulated by something like the old gods or an institution like the library. And how the group themselves feel about that. How good or bad of a job have they done using it? But I think it's time in a show like The Magicians to at least have that back on the playing board. I'm curious what the monster is going to be. What could it be? They've shown us dragons. They've shown us centaurs. The only thing that comes to mind, and this is complete conjecture, 
is that what they see on the other end is themselves, but evil versions. I couldn't agree more. I don't think it's going to be a creature. I think that was a bait and switch. They say it as though the old gods had several attempts at creating a race they could play around with, and humans are what they wound up with. So maybe a slight variation on that that didn't work as well. Maybe people that were even worse with the magic they had been given than we are. Maybe. But let's not go down that hallway. That's going, we're going to have plenty of time to go that way. As a whole, what did you feel about this episode? Other than the slight pacing problems, I really enjoyed it. I did like having some of our questions answered. We've waited a long time for it, so some of them didn't need to be drawn out any more than they were. I like that we're still keeping with the 23 timeline characters being a very important part of this story, although I can't believe we didn't see Marina again after last time. I believe that. They tend to do that to us. They'll... Uh... Let us forget for a moment about these characters. Well, so more shocking than that is the Harriet Victoria thing, because that's been quite a few episodes now. Yeah. Pacing problem. I know what you're saying, but I think pacing problem is the wrong word, because when I hear pacing problem, I feel like a show had trouble with keeping us interested, you know, so slow pacing or... Uh, went too fast for us to understand. You're I think thinking it was Mr. Robot I think, when I say something yeah. like that. <laughs> I think more of what you're saying is that they had to fill so much in and we enjoyed it so much we wanted more of that. Well, it's the juggling, kind of like we've been saying all season long, and I think they've done a fantastic job better in season three than ever before at managing all of their characters, both main and secondary, all of their plot lines. There are times where I have wished to see a little more in Fillory than on Earth or a little more with this set of characters than that. But yeah, a lot of that boils down to personal preference. I wonder now, like I say, in in thinking back where they decided to spend bigger chunks of time in episodes, if there's other versions of that maybe that I would have liked to see better. But overall, this has just been a wonderful season. I'm very excited to see what they do with the finale. And I'm still, despite having so much explained to me and so many answers, completely confused as to how I feel about the library. And I think that's an accomplishment in and of itself, that they still have me wondering about it. Well, I think it's one of those where even if you know the whole truth, it's hard to see who's the bad guy in that. There's a lot of situations, especially in this episode that we see, and we'll go into it further with Q. That's another situation, which one is the less selfish path to go down. But as far as The library is concerned, and I I believe we briefly spoke about this before, what is the right thing to do? We've been shown the background of Harriet and her reasonings for not liking the library, which is very justifiable. You know, who are they to say who can get the knowledge or not? Who are they to dictate where the power goes? And now even further, who are they to dictate where the magic goes? Yeah, I think they did a great job of giving us the con point of view through a character we like, such as Harriet about the library. And now perhaps they're going to give us the flip side of that through characters like Alice and maybe eventually Penny from where we left off with him, that perhaps we could be a bit more understanding of where they're coming from and why they're taking the actions they are. To our group right now, this seems insane. The library is the bad guy and we need to work against that. But as usual, our group doesn't have all of the information. And Alice points out, acting without understanding the consequences is what got us in trouble in the first place. Maybe we need to know a little more before we just start reacting to situations. Yeah, this is one of those occasions where if we had to write a book report back in high school and we had to give pros and cons, it's easy to give both. I could argue the pros uh, 
you know, they're the library. They have knowledge that we don't have. Maybe they've seen this happen before over and over and over again, and they know that magic can no longer be trusted. But then I can give the reverse. You know, there, there's no way that Zelda can dictate who has it. But then you think about who is the right person to dictate that. Surely not the old gods who are using it as a carrot to dangle before us and just play around with us. When mistakes are made, they shove it into this closet at the end of the world and move on to something new. Uh, the humans, with all their fallibility and mistakes, should they really be in charge? And as we said before, when you open it back up now, you can't go back on that decision. You can't pick and choose. When you say, I'm going to give it to everyone, you wind up with people like Martin Chatwin who have the ability now to take advantage of a world and do evil things. Or Q23 or the fox. Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes on and on. The answer I don't have, but I know for sure I don't feel comfortable with letting someone dictate what I can have. I agree with you. That's a really tricky point. And I just want to go to something Sierra Gamble said once in a Vox interview back in season one. She said, at the end of the day, at least on our show, there's nothing inherently good or evil about magic itself. It's a tool. So in each person's hands, it manifests in a different way. For one person, it's a handy, if inconsistent, helper. In another, it's the equivalent of heroin. She goes on to further say, that takes us to an important idea that runs through our show. These beings, the old gods, have so much power. We need them so badly. And with few exceptions, they really don't give much of a fuck about anything other than themselves. This is not a sustainable dynamic once the lid is off and the lid's coming off. And that was back in season one. Man, do we really see the repercussions of that and all of the very big underlying questions that they're playing around with. Before we get into plot, let's talk new faces and places. For faces, I want to mention we didn't see this person yet, but we got a brief verbal introduction to somebody named the architect, who seems to be the one to manage all of these things the gods create. Well, in an essence, wasn't Ember and Umber architects? I mean, they created Fillory. Of their universe, yeah. Yeah, but this is like architect of everything. It sounds like the master one. Okay. Maybe who comes in and deals with problems once they arise or I don't know, but mm. it's a cool concept. For places, yet again, we didn't see it, but we hear about the castle at the end of the world, the place the key quest will take the group where the gods put things they have made before us, mistakes that never should have happened. Gods always make mistakes, these gods, especially in Greek mythology and the whole emotional thing. They're more emotional than we are. It's crazy, and that's why we say we can't even leave it in the hands of the gods to dictate who gets the magic. They're so human, even they're even though they're supposed to be these supreme beings. We also saw Honeyclaw's pub, which is going to be really fun to talk about where they go to meet with Frey. And for Spells and Magic, we saw the Siphon, an object that needs a lot of energy to be powered and will divert the flow of magic once it is turned back on. And we also saw during the commercials a little ad for the Alexa Magician's Trivia app. So, of course, we had to do it last night. We loaded that skill to Alexa and we did the whole thing. And we got everything right, except for once, because it misunderstood me. Yeah, we had the right answer, but she was having trouble reading us this time. I'm not sure why. It was fun, though. You should check it out. Yeah, very fun. All your favorite characters come on, and they talk to you. And basically, you're on a journey to get into Break Bills and then into Fillory. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump into episode 12, where we get a very interesting style for the previously on I loved how it looked like they were going to do a general recap, but this wound up feeding right into our episode with Josh telling Penny 23 about what's happened with their group. He explains Penny 40, his relationship with Katie, 
and the key quest they've been on all season. And of course, it was broken up with some Josh humor, which I really loved. You know, his whole like uh, jacked up versus jacked off (laughs) comedy was pretty good. And, you know, with Penny coming in with his questions and like, move on. You know, I don't want to hear that. So good. Hard pass. Hard pass. Yeah. As we really get to know this show and our writers, I love the consistencies they have and things that we can not expect because it's not boring or, or predictable, but it's something that's comforting. If you remember last season, Ember gave us that awesome recap of what happened so far. That was such a fun clip as well. And this time we have Josh. They do it in a fun manner that they get done what they need to get done, but it also feels like part of the story still. They also have this way, this very brilliant way of knowing exactly what the viewers are thinking and speaking to that or making fun of it. So Penny says, well, hold on, you skipped the sixth key. What about that one? And Josh says, no, it's intentionally confusing. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that happen in the show where we discussed it and we're like, oh my God, it's like, I think we always say this. It's like they're hearing us. Yeah. And it's also, they have their finger on the pulse of pop culture so well that they know already what we're going to say as far as calling Penny, Penny 23. Like they just knew. And they use that terminology. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I also really enjoyed to help Penny understand Josh shows him the grand hookup murder chart for all of our characters. And as Josh is explaining all of this, Katie comes in. When we knew this was bound to happen, he tells her, I'm not your Penny. So this particular Penny speaks differently. This is how Arjun is acting him out. He's a lot more harder. And if you notice, what he does is he doesn't open his jaw as much, which gives a, a more of a baseline tone to his voice. He's got much more neutral affect. He keeps his facial gestures to a minimum. And yet he has this kind of innate confidence. He knows what he wants and what he doesn't want and seems a lot more comfortable moving forward with that no matter what. Yeah, at this point, emotions are not in his way. Our other Penny had some emotional issues. He was holding on to a lot of things, but I also think that's part of what made him wonderful. We talked about this with the Josh versus Josh thing. While he did have a lot of feelings about the group abandoning him and that sometimes really got to him and frustrated him, it's also what made him who he was and what made us love him so much. And I think that's why you're feeling a little bit skeptical about this Penny and wondering if we can trust him. There could be something inherently very different about him. And I don't know if he'll react to the group in the same way that our Penny would. Yeah, so far this episode, he was very helpful. But I saw glimpses of a dark side of him. He was ready to take out Fox right away. And I think helpful for Julia. So does he really care about the group as a whole, the way our Penny did, even though he was always saying he didn't? He was the first one to jump in and help out. This one... If Julia wasn't involved in those situations, I don't know if he would have cared enough to step in. Well, remember, we learned that our Penny did a lot of that to almost prove to people his worth. Mm. This one doesn't seem to care about that. He doesn't need to. Yeah. I can't wait till Penny 23 meets Penny Penny 40. 40. Yeah. If that happens, yeah. I think it will. They have to. That's good TV. I just don't know the mechanics of that because he's trapped in the underworld now. But we know at least they can communicate using that unity key. It did finally come back around in this episode. Yeah, but only to Penny 23. That was heartbreaking. Oh, my goodness. He's been replaced. He's like, Katie, Katie, it's 
It's Penny 23. Um, what is How that? heartbreaking. What does that mean that some greater force of magic feels like this is now the new Penny for our group? That harkens to a bigger question, and that's about our Penny. After having that cupcake, what's going on? He's not just trapped down there now. I think his storyline or his job there, for lack of a better word, is more grandiose at this point. Mm-hmm. And maybe not in a good way. Again, we do not trust Hades. You don't trust Hades. Be specific. You don't? Oh, you do? I said last time I'm not ready to say how I feel about Mm. that yet. I think there's a lot of preconceptions about Hades because of what we think from Greek mythology and the, the idea of the underworld. He's somehow related here to the library. This is all making us very suspect. And the biggest red flag has to be that Reynard talks about him being his stepfather here. But that's also kind of a product of circumstance. I don't know if you can gauge Hades based on that relationship yet. He's definitely not going to be a great, kind, benevolent character. Um, But it's all about what I said last time. Is there a reason why he's doing what he's doing? And he thinks that Penny is needed there to further that cause. Well, while this is happening, Julia is hearing whispers that we will later come to find out are prayers. Q and Alice are trying to figure out what to do. Q is firm that they need to continue the quest, but Alice thinks they need to take a minute to consider, saying making decisions like this without understanding the consequences is exactly why magic is gone. Julia comes to a compromise that they should search the castle first and find the truth. So Alice says she will ask the library. But after she leaves, Quentin suggests Penny Astral project in to keep an eye on Alice during the conversation. Well, that was a very smart thing to suggest. Q obviously does not trust Alice. He feels like he's going to be backstabbed again, which I'm on the same boat as him. But we do need to once again bring up the fact that Q feels like the boss at this point. Yeah, he is Mr. In Control of the Quest. He decides what, when, where. We've been suspicious of Alice all season, so I can definitely understand that. But is that going to go too far and cloud his own judgment? We know Alice is not a bad person at heart. She's very, very intelligent, and she clearly thinks there's a reason why she has to be involved in this. Ultimately, she might be wrong, but there could be some good points there that Quentin should be listening to, and he can't hear it because he's too emotional and upset with her that he can't trust her right now. And we see the conversation where the librarian tells Alice she has heard of the castle at the end of the world. It was built by the gods, but its contents are secret by design. All we mortals know is we are not meant to know. It could be the lair of a monster, or it could be the gods just messing with us. She's kind of brushing these questions off because she wants to get to her point, and she suggests that Alice talk to somebody who has been inside, i.e. a god. And then she shows Alice the siphon, saying their intended source for power-up hasn't held up their end of the bargain. So I know a lot of people had the same thoughts about what their intended source was, being the fairy dust Mm. potentially they were collecting from Irene. And now we know they were collecting it to have enough power to power the siphon. Yeah, so that they could divert the magic over to the library once it gets turned back on. But This is what I mean. When you have a dictatorship, quote unquote, you often get the ends justify the means. So if the librarians aren't bad, then why is it okay to torture fairies like that? Well, and they're even willing to sacrifice Julia here because... She suggests that her magic would be powerful enough if implanted into the siphon. 
And Alice says not only would she not agree to that, they would have to take it by force. It could kill her. The librarian says you have to make some sacrifices along the way. That's just the way that it works. First of all, giving her um, a vial of fairy blow, I feel at this point would not give her enough power to take the power from Julia. Maybe they don't know quite how much Julia's been powering up and how strong Mm. it's become. I mean, she is. We've never seen anyone this strong. It's happening very quickly. Yeah. The the rate at which she keeps kind of leveling up. Well, and we know this is a very precarious situation. Once the magic is flowing, they only have 30 seconds to attach the siphon. If they miss the window, their chance is gone forever. And as we said, Penny was there and saw this whole thing. Now we're going to cut over to the Munchak, where Josh delivers food to Margot and Elliot. They're just flying around aboard the ship. I guess they don't really know what else to do right now. We see a private conversation between Elliot and Fenn where he tells her she doesn't need to stay anymore. After all, he's not a king now. But she explains she can't go back to her old life. They're basically stuck with each other. This is just a reminder of their relationship in the beginning. Elliot was forced to be with her and he never really loved her. But I think she he's grown to love her in a way. Not sexually or anything, but I think there's a part of him that does. I Yeah, I think they have a good relationship as far as this partnership that they've had. As much as we love Elliot, he did have a couple of missteps with the women in his life in this episode, right? We'll get to the obvious with Margot later, but he has been struggling with this whole Fen relationship for yeah. a while now. I mean, maybe he didn't think it all the way through. If she leaves, go back to what? Where does she go? Yeah. What does she do? You know, uh, you kind of got her into this situation as well, and you can't just drop her now. Absolutely. And on her side, we went from thinking that she was completely in love with him last season to realizing, you know, she's grown so much this season. And we know that she knows now. She totally understands where he's at, but she just gives it to him straight, which I really enjoyed. You're stuck with me as much as I'm stuck with you. Yeah. But not in a mean way. Somehow she managed to do it. No, she's just like, yeah. you're not seeing this clearly. you, yeah. you got to understand the full extent of the situation now. This isn't a game anymore. You are embroiled in fillery. This is your life. It's my life too. This is my land. These are my people. We have to make this work. And I do want to mention that I'm really happy that this show has kept the Munchak in play. I, if you recall, I think it was episode two where I was like, oh no, is that the end of the Munchak already? I told you, don't worry. Yeah. It would stick around. It's now their home base, essentially. Well, at least in this episode. But we know they're going to need to use it to get to the end of the world. Yeah, I liked that it was a place of refuge. They they couldn't really set down and be back in Fillory because of the climate there, but they could just circle around <laughs> yeah. from above. And I, I hope we go back to that heartwood a little more at some point. Well, I was going to save this till later, but I'd probably forget. I think perhaps the Hartwood had something to do with the animals loving Margot. Of course, Humble Drum was the main catalyst of getting the animals on her side, but I think for sure they all speak, right? Nature speaks to each other. And the Hartwood, out of all of our crew, has definitely grown closest to Margot. Yeah, it was important that they showed us that early on. It would have fell a little flat if the people loved Marco just because she had this conversation with Humble Drum in a bar for five minutes. It was the long journey of 
her interacting with the non-human creatures, the Florians, getting to know their culture. We kept saying that from the beginning. How can the humans think they're fit to rule if they don't really understand the people, the land, what it is they're ruling over? While everybody else was off on these questing adventures, Margot stayed there and did the hard work of figuring out how to do that. And against all odds, she did get to know the people and she did feel for them and what their plight was, including the magical creatures. I completely agree. I mean, that goes even further. In the end, with her being the High King, it only makes sense if you Mm -hmm. think about it. Just look at this whole season. She did what a ruler is supposed to do. Yeah. And not saying that Elliot didn't. He did what he had to do as well. I don't believe for a second that the whole dichotomy of ruling is going to change. Elliot will always still be there. They're going to do it together. They were meant to do it together. And let's be honest. High Queen for Elliot, that fits. (laughs) I think he kind of likes Margot having to be that ultimate one who makes the hard decisions and kind of does what they need to do. That fits Margot's personality. But they're not going to exclude anybody who can help them, including Tick. They don't cast him out. They say you're still going to have a place on the council. We're smart enough to know we need you, even if we don't trust you. Very smart. Very grown up of them. So at the end of this scene, Margot says they've been trying to negotiate for the last key with the fairy queen, but she keeps sending her responses via the bunny, eat my ass. I couldn't stop laughing. That was so funny. It was hysterical that she was trying to talk and the bunny kept saying it over and over. (laughs) I I heard somebody write about this, and I apologize, I can't remember who it was, but I had the exact same thoughts. The Fairy Queen has been kind of comically not understanding these Earth human sayings and phrases all season long, and yet she knows enough to send a message saying, eat my ass. Well, maybe that saying is universal. It could be. I mean, bestiality is universal, it seems. Well, yeah, more accepted. I feel like, yeah, I feel like Fillory's sexual natures are actually even more than Earth. So maybe eat my ass works there. Well, it kind of makes sense given what we find out later. Over one million of the citizens in Fillory are talking animals, while only 50,000 are humans. One thing I noticed right away is that Margot is dressed very dark again, very almost evil witch. And I was worried. I thought they were showing us visually where this episode was going to go, where Margot would be the one to kind of mess things up again with the fairies, which is all in black, yeah. the bright red lipstick. Yeah, I saw that too. And I hope they continue to do this. If if you Clatchers noticed, as soon as she was high queen and was no longer in war mode, her attire changed completely again. Yeah. So they're definitely utilizing her attire to show us where she's at. I always love shows that do that. We analyze that with Game of Thrones a lot. The shifts in power and status where people are at very much being reflected in their costumes. Especially with Sansa. That was one of the main characters where she was dressed differently. Yeah, definitely. We've seen that with uh, quite a few female characters in Game of Thrones. And Jon Snow, which was badass. (laughs) Okay, we digress. Well, the group goes next into a bar called Honeyclaw's Pub to speak with Frey. They ask her to try to talk to the queen, but Frey is against this idea. And while Elliot is telling her they're offering real peace between humans and fairies, Margot is chatting up the bear bartender, Humbledrum, who happens to be Frey's boyfriend. This whole scene acted as a little bit of comic relief for this episode. It was very fun to watch. Yeah, Margot keeps saying, I'm not judging. (laughs) (laughs) And Elliot, whenever he has the screen time to be funny, to show the awkwardness of what's going on, He's very good at that. 
Yeah, I'm going to tell you what I wish my father had said to me <laughs> and uh, that he approves. He's okaying this because, sweetly enough, Humble Drum wants Frey's father's approval. Well, we normally save it to the end, but while we're talking about it and it's relevant, Humble Drum is our character review for this episode. He is a talking bear who is a highly respected member of the community in Fillory. The reason I got excited is Humble Drum is one of the characters from the Lev Grossman books. In fact, in an interview, when asked why he included a boozy bear, he said, My single favorite character in the book? Humble Drum, the drunken bear? Well, I think if animals could actually talk, they would be incredibly boring. I mean, how dull would it be to talk to a bear about anything? I wanted to play with that idea. As a gentle correction, or thinking about an anxiety of influence that played on Lewis's talking animals. And he's speaking about Narnia and the constant comparisons that come out of that from his work. Just so you'll have a bit of background, I'm going to read you a little passage where they talk about Humbledrum from the books. This is Quentin's point of view. He says the others were conspicuously silent or talked among themselves, elaborately play-acting that they were unaware of the fact Quentin was conversing with a drunk magic bear. Quentin understood he was operating outside most of the group's comfort level. He could see out of the corner of his eye that Elliot was trying to shoot him warning glances from the other table, but he avoided them. It wasn't like what he was doing was easy. The range of Humble Drum's interests were suffocatingly narrow, and his depth of knowledge in those areas abysmally profound. Quentin still vaguely remembered being a goose, how laser-focused he'd been on air currents and freshwater greenery. He realized now that all animals were probably at heart insufferable boars. As a hibernating mammal, Humble Drum had far more than the layman's familiarity with cave geology. When it came to honey, it was the subtlest and most sophisticated of gastronomes. Quentin learned quickly to steer the conversation away from chestnuts altogether. <laughs> and so this is just a fun example. They're in the bar. It's one of the first times they're all in Fillory getting to know what it's like, and he has to chat up this bear to get some more information about the state of things, what's really happening in Fillory. And he approaches him because he looks drunk, like an easy target. He'll eventually open up about that. But all the dude wants to talk about is honey and <laughs> things having to do with the forest. And he's like, man, this guy is boring. That's hilarious. That's great. So you took that right from the book? Yeah. And guys, don't forget, we still have that deal with Audible. So you can get this first book completely free. Just use audible.com forward slash CKC. Well, now there's the TV version of Humble Drum. They said they wrote the talking bear into the season one finale, actually. They were supposed to stop by a pub, much as in this book scene, and Humble Drum would be in that. And he was going to be having a drinking game with Elliot, which would have been really interesting. They said we were prepared to do all of the 3D VFX animation required to bring the bear to talking life. We shot the finale in December, and we had booked the bear. Then our line producer called me and said, So bears hibernate in the winter. The bear won't be doing any acting. We'd have to move the scene from night to day, and even then, the trainer has told us all the bear is going to want to do is sleep. So the animal in that scene wound up being an English bulldog. We rewrote the scene, knowing we would bring the bear in at a later time when it was more seasonally appropriate. They always say the hardest characters to work with in film are animals. And kids. So that's funny. They never considered that it's wintertime. Yeah. The bear was just going to be sleeping. Although I'm thinking about it later. He was supposed to be drunk in these stories. It kind of would have been funny if he just kept falling asleep <laughs> at the bar. He'd pissed, though. <laughs> Keep waking him up. But they did eventually get their bear. 
and this is Billy the Bear, an actor grizzly bear who's six years old. He was born in Ontario and now lives in British Columbia on an open compound. We found out from the behind the scenes, a video that was on the sci-fi website, and Brittany, the actress who plays Fen, was explaining to us this was really wonderful, down to the fact that his favorite food is grapes, but on set they coerced him using cookies. (laughs) And obviously they couldn't be acting with the actors and the bear in the scene at the same time. They had to do the bear first with the trainers there to help him, and then our characters came in and acted without anything there. Yeah, looking at uh, orange tape or something, (laughs) and then they just split-screened it. Very cool, and uh, some more behind the scenes. They were talking about the fact that they couldn't have the bear speak too much because when the bear speaks, now they have to bring in the computer graphics, and the more words the bear had to speak, the more costly it would be. After we see the fairy queen come to the bar to see Frey and the others... Elliot and Margot tell her they will give the fairies a place on Fillory to settle down in exchange for the key. At which point she tries to pretend they can wait out the war and then take over. This is where Frey comes in handy. She knows they can't. There are no fairy children in their realm. They can't produce there. So without Fillory, they will go extinct. So this was great. This is what we've been waiting for. Why were the fairies there? What was their goal? Why all these eggs? I think we had an inkling that that was the issue. But now we know for a fact. And it makes sense if you think back to the whole season. Right from the beginning of the season where she had Margot getting all of the supplies. I guess you would say supplies. All mm-hmm. the weird shit. Yeah. To cultivate this farm for her. And really, let's talk. Let's go back to the whole who's bad. Do the bad guys feel like they're bad from the way they're thinking? We thought that the fairies were evil. But we're coming to find out it was purely survival. Which I did kind of say from the very beginning that I thought there was a reason this is why the fairy queen was acting like that. I firmly believed she was trying to help Margot, to help her to lead better, to help make Fillory better. And it was that, but also for their own survival, why she was doing these things. And this is what I mean. The fairy queen did do some terrible things and she did kill some people. Yet at the end of the day, we feel okay about her because we understand why she got to the place she's in. That's why I wonder if you saw more backstory a little bit on the library and what they've seen, what they've been through, would you feel differently now about how they're trying to approach this with magic? But I I do have questions about that because the fairies themselves must need certain kinds of conditions and it's okay in their realm for them, but not for children i guess it's just more extreme like an incubating egg or something but it's hard to believe this is how they've gone on forever they live in that place but they have to have younger ones raised somewhere else or have they just not had any new ones since they escaped earth and came to fillory i think that's the case yeah but remember they live a lot longer than we do they dwarf the lifespans of dwarfs yeah, it just <laughs> it kind of uh, puts it into focus that that whole time they haven't had any new fairy children. Yeah. Uh, but she stands her ground here. She insists that Margot and Elliot no longer speak for Fillory. They should come back with either a crown or an army. She called their bluff. When Margot was speaking to her, I was like, God, can you just try to be a little nicer? <laughs> you know. I think she knows their people have been in such danger. She can't bring them back here to the climate things are in right now in Fillory and feel good about that. So she either needs physical backup or the people being behind them once again as true leaders. Yeah, it makes sense from the Fairy Queen's side. She's got to look out for her people. You can't promise we'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You're not the leader anymore. 
You guys are hiding out on a ship right now. <laughs> but I'm so far very happy to see the fairy queens more than willing to work with them, at least at this point, thanks to Julia. But I do have to say I'm worried about next episode. I feel we know how much the queen cares for her people, and if anything goes awry, even if it's not our human's fault, the queen needs to, she'll do anything, even backstab them yeah. for survival. We've got a lot of very precarious things going on with Tick still hanging around and we don't have things really resolved with the floaters and the Lorians. We haven't come back around to that. So it's a win, but an uneasy victory at best at this moment. So we see that if our crew gets this done, the queen, once all of her people are now in Fillory, she will give them the key, which will destroy their world. So let me ask you. Those quick scenes that we've been seeing with a world being destroyed. Are we really starting to say that has to be the fairy realm? No, I'm, I'm definitely not ready to go there yet. I still believe that that was the Netherlands. I think we got very good proof of the world kind of falling apart. And I don't know if that was as a result of the missing magic or something bigger going on that we don't even know about. Yeah, I feel like the librarians know something because they abandoned the Netherland library real quick. And when Elliot and Fenn were escaped there, we saw how terrible the situation looked. I mean, the place itself did seem to be kind of falling apart. Uh, but that leads me to a question because they make it out to be that they have all of the keys in their possession by the end of this episode. And yet we did not see the queen bringing her people over or physically giving us the key yet. So I don't know if we're just mentally saying, okay, we can check that one off or if we've physically been given it. I believe in the beginning of ne next episode, real quick, they'll sum it up. We mm -hmm. have the key. They're running out of time right now. They have one more episode left. That's what I mean. To, so, to have so many things not wrapped up, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, but how interesting will that scene be if they showed it to us? So they visually show there's more fairies over, and then the queen just gives them the key. Maybe they thought, all right, you know, let's get rid of that scene. We have so much to show our clatchers. We have so much to show our viewers. Uh, you know, just cut that and we'll have our crew just acknowledge it in the beginning of season 13. If all goes well and easily, that's fine. But if it doesn't, yeah. we're going to have to see more. Question, do we know what this key's power is? No, I don't think we really know. Because this is going to be the last key as far as the last one we obtain, since we went out of sequence, we're thinking that it will open the door to the castle at the end of the world. The seventh one allowed you to see into the future. And so is this just kind of finishing the set number six to get there, or does it have a power of its own? It must have a power of its own if it's creating the fairy realm and sustaining it. Yeah. I don't know exactly what that would be. Life, maybe life or something. Yeah, and... Protection. For sure, we need all seven keys to open the door. Not just having the sixth key would open the door, but there's got to be something else to that. And then let's go back to the seventh key. We know that our crew hasn't been able to see into the future yet, utilizing that key. I'm wondering if that's going to come into play, because will that change their approach in going to the end of the world? You know, being able to see the future and being like, okay, so uh, Q23 was right. You know, <laughs> this bad thing's going to happen. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to stop them. No. Even if it changes things, I think they've gone too far. This is too important. They're going to go ahead and let the magic back in. Speaking of which, in the next scene, Alice says they need to find a god who's been in the castle before. She's going to ask Dean Fogg about one they can contact. This is when Penny shows up and tells them Alice is lying. She's lying. Not about the god stuff, that's true. That's what she's leaving out. They gave her some sort of metal thing 
called his siphon. He's supposed to charge it up by ripping out Julia's power, which could kill her. She didn't seem psyched about the idea, but she didn't say no. So? Now what? And then he goes to speak to Katie and sees she's been using the unity key to talk to the other Penny, as he calls him. Katie doesn't blame him. She knows he was just trying to survive by coming here. But the group has given up now on finding the real Penny, quote unquote. He's still out there, and I see her point. They have a way of just always forgetting about Penny. Now that he's in the underworld and we have some other version of him here, they're done trying to solve that or bring him back. Well, you know, they're done. They're so engulfed in what's going on. I refuse to think that they're done with that. And I refuse to think that they forgot about Harriet. They're always engulfed, though, in the problem of the moment. And think back to how many things Penny has gone through that they have just dropped. Right? Him losing his hands. They never followed up on trying to help him get that fixed. Well, he kind of got it fixed with the whole lifetime recruitment with the library. He did that. Yeah. They did not help him. Yeah. And they haven't been trying to figure out a way to get him out of the underworld. This is constantly what they do to him. I'm sorry to say, I don't think they mean to be mean to him, but it really is only Katie at the end of every problem, even when he was dying, trying to help him out. And it's kind of nuts to think about. Even a different version of himself isn't helping trying to get back the other version of himself. Yeah, but this version of himself, I really liked the fact that he was so blunt, just telling, as soon as Alice left, he was just like, she's lying. Not about this, but, and then he just gave it to him straight up. And then, so what do we do next? Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. We needed that at that moment. Mm -hmm. Just matter of fact. But it all keeps coming back to the same thing for him. His only apparent motivation. As Katie's talking, she says that their Julia is also different from the one he loved in his timeline. And he asks her to explain. That's really what he's searching for. Tell me more about Julia. Yeah. You know, know, he's not going to just give up on that, I believe. He's playing the long game, maybe. But also, there's twice now where Penny, 23, by mistake, really stabs Katie right in the heart when he calls that Penny the other Penny. Mm. She's and the look on her face. You're the other saying, Penny. Yeah. <laughs> and then again, the, the part when she's using the key to talk to everyone. Penny, mm. She says Penny. So he's like, yeah, I'm right here. You know, though, in this conversation where they're kind of talking about the way things are here, there was a little bit of a connection. I think this Penny saw why the other Penny would fall in love with Katie that in this timeline, Katie is more like the Julia he fell in love with in his timeline. And Katie here is telling her, listen, Julia 40 is different from yours. She's not like that. And and maybe part of him saw a glimpse of that. I think getting to know both of them better, this Penny could wind up liking this Katie. Yeah, but I don't think this Katie will allow her heart to go to this Penny. I don't think so either, but it could get really freaking tricky. And he does come up with a very good idea. After hearing the whole story, he realizes Reynard could still be out there. He's a god, but he's powerless, so he's the one they need to find to get the story. And that's something none of them would probably even let themselves think of, but yep. it was a good solution to the problem. Yeah, sometimes emotions get in the way. Very smart. But I was very worried. I was like, oh no. Because Julia is on a good path right now. She's doing so well emotionally and being there to help people, which is amazing. And she's getting more powerful as she does it. But I'm always worried 
Don't drag her back into the Reynard thing. She'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then knowing that, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be what puts her Push on her. tilt. Yeah. yeah. But luckily it wasn't. Well, especially given the next scene, which is with Julia and Dean Fogg, she starts out, she's praying to Persephone. And you can see she's really trying to understand what's going on with her. She thinks she hears Dean Fogg yell out. She goes to see him and explains she's been having ringing in her ears and can feel what other people are feeling. That's when he suggests she might be hearing prayers. And she says she felt the desperation coming from Dean Fogg. She thinks that's because she's supposed to help him by restoring his eyes. This Dean Fogg we're seeing is becoming more and more like Dean Fogg 23. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's just broken. He's a broken man. I feel bad for him. I think this is going to change the equation, though, a lot. Him having his eyesight back, which is kind of the very first thing that cut him in half. He just wasn't who he was before. And I love how our writers are very careful to explain things so that we're not like, yeah, but why could you do that now? What I'm saying is, why could she fix it now? Yeah, she has more power, but no one ever tried to fix it. We were saying that last season. Dean Fogg explains that. It won't be me. Something will change. It won't be my eyes. It was magically removed. So by putting it back, you could change something. Exactly. She right away explains, yeah, but not by my power. So right away, the writers got rid of that question for us. I also think it solves the questions that will inevitably come up later of, well, why not other problems then? Why not Quentin's father's cancer? Because that's not a magical thing. That's a regular human illness, which seems to be very different, such as when we see Julia praying for this sick boy somewhere else that she knows he's he's got an illness and she's trying it, it's just not quite working yet. That seems to be a very different thing, something that her magic can't always fix. Absolutely, but my whole thing with the cancer is why if magic is gone, his cancer is gone. He's in remission. If it's not magically caused. Right. I know. And the whole thought, we're jumping ahead. The whole thought of him feeling when magic was gone, like he felt it, but he's not a magician. You think there's something to that? Yeah. And we'll dive deeper later on in the episode. (laughs) Yeah. The end of this scene is that Julia winds up doing it. She is able to fix it. His eyesight is restored, and I'm very interested to see where the character of Dean Fogg goes now. Over in Fillory, the group realizes they need to get Tick to call for an election, but he has nothing to gain from that. They start by throwing out thousands of flyers that they get from Kinko's. (laughs) And it's a good idea, because the citizens now believe they are getting elections. Tick can't announce otherwise, or they will revolt. So he has to engage in the campaign. And this was all Josh, right? His idea? Yeah. It makes sense, especially considering what Margot says later on, which this episode was a lot of winks, winks to our uh, current political state, where she says it's so much easier to give. Than to take away. Yeah. Yeah. Obamacare. Mm-hmm. This is also the part where privately Elliot, Elliot explains to Margot it should only be his name on the ballot. After all, Fillory is patriarchal and they need to put their best foot forward to win. He- I had mixed feelings on this. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't Elliot being sexist or devious. I think he really felt that we're bringing Fillory into the 20th century because they're so far behind on certain things. It would be a bridge too far to ask them otherwise. I mean, here's what I had trouble seeing our Elliot as a character say that, though. It didn't feel representative of his personality that he wouldn't think that's possible or he wouldn't insist that Margot be part of the team with him as she always was. 
it felt like they had to stretch it a little bit to make the point that they were trying to make? Honestly, I don't know if they were really trying to make a point, quote unquote. And there's a lot of bloggers out there that ran with this, Mm -hmm. making it a whole storyline about women and power. Uh, I really felt like this was just a way to set up the angle for the surprise at the end with Margot winning. It meant that much more rather than if it was both of them running and everyone just voted for Margot. That kind of would make it a sad thing. Well, I partially agree. I, I definitely think that they weren't trying to make a huge deal about it. I do think they are constantly telling a story about women in power, and Margot is certainly one of those characters that they choose to focus in on. And clearly, they're making commentary about our current political situation and some of the things that can parallel there. You know what? I agree. And I think the way I just said it, I might have pissed some people off. I wasn't putting down the woman's movement or no, anything. No, 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 I was, no. I was saying exactly what you're saying. This has been a through line. I don't think this was the pivotal moment where the magicians were making a stand. You know what I mean? No, it's just something that's been built into Margot's character for a very long time. Which I really like how they do that. And I like how they don't punch you in the face with it often. They just, they put it, they make it part of the narrative. I also think that it's probably more so about the relationship that Elliot and Margot have together, which they have been exploring since the beginning of the series. It's a different kind of relationship, which is lovely. They're not in a romantic situation, and yet they love and care about each other so deeply, which is why it's surprising that there's a moment that Elliot doesn't really get it. He doesn't get Margot or what she's been trying to do or why he has to fight for that too. You know, I I felt like that was a little bit of a stretch, but I do think they're hearkening back to something in the books where the same thing was happening with Elliot and well, the character they call Janet there, and him talking about how deep down maybe nobody knows her that well, that there's so much anger and armor that she wears, such a defense she puts up for the world. Does anybody truly ever get to see inside of that to what's at the heart of Janet? Whereas I think that our TV Elliot knows Margot a deal better than that. Well, also, Josh has ideas. He's about to tell Margot he needs to go find Julia for her to help them. They need magic to get to this next point in the election. But no sooner does he say that than she shows up. Julia says he felt that they needed her and she just appeared there. Yet another of the hundreds of examples we're getting of every second Julia's power growing to the point that she can't even keep up with it. It's like, oh, this is something new. I didn't know I could do this. He has this brilliant idea of bringing her to the forest, the sentient trees that she blew up when she had no shade to see if she can fix it. And she does. She makes the trees regrow. And Josh takes this opportunity to tell all the (laughs) Felorians, remember this, vote children of Earth. And of course, he had the flyers on hand. This was a very awesome scene. It was a big visual spectacle. Another redeeming moment for Julia. Do you feel, now I think I know the answer to this, but I want to ask anyways, do you feel that Josh was using Julia and her powers? Not using her. I think this was the plan all along. This is why he intended to go back and get her. They knew that they had to show Fillory they could be good leaders. He knew that was true at the heart of things, that Elliot and Margot did want to rule in the right way, but how could they show that? to them, and especially how could they show that without their normal magic that they would have to do good things? The only person that's representative of that right now is Julia. She can make that impression. And this is also something that can help her. 
it wasn't totally self-serving. We need you to come in and do this. She had to have that moment because that's something she's probably been holding on to the number of things that shadeless Julia did that she feels bad about. So I, I think it works for everybody. And it's also the jumping off point to a really fun montage that we get. They did a big fake out, though. At the end of last episode, when we saw the next on, they showed Julia's eyes glowing, and then the field looked like it was blowing up. So we thought she was destroying something, where really that was just the trees breaking through the ground. I'm really loving this arc that we're getting with Julia, her becoming more and more powerful. It's so fun for me when I watch shows or movies that get one of our favorite characters, you know, super strong. Matrix, for example, the first one with Neo, probably the only really good one. But let me ask you, this is something that entertainment has trouble with once this occurs. Once she becomes as powerful as she can, story-wise, it's very difficult to create problems that are interesting. Most story arcs, there's a situation that people have to fix or, or go through. Once you have a character like Neo, Julia, who are all in power, there's not much they can throw at you to make it interesting or us worried enough. So I'm curious of what they're going to do once she has too much power. Is it going to be where in order for the crew to bring back magic fully to everyone, she has to displace all of her power across the world to the magicians, which <clears throat> deems her just a regular magician again, or something happens where she she has to sacrifice the power. When you said that, that made sense to me, but I'm hoping that they don't go that route because I feel like that's the easy way out. We have to just take it away from her because it becomes too easy if she has it. I'm hoping they do something a little more interesting with it. I know they've planted the seeds already for what her struggle could be. We see a couple of scenes later where she's trying to help this boy that's praying to her and she can't figure out how to do it. It's starting to engross her. And I think being able to hear the prayers and the needs of all the people could start to overwhelm her. She doesn't know how to manage that, which would be an interesting through line to have her explore that it's not a problem for most gods because they don't care enough. Mm -hmm. That's something she constantly has to deal with. I wonder if she'll have to develop a relationship more with, let's say, somebody like Persephone. That's another benevolent goddess. Has she had to go through these types of things? Or is that just a learning curve? She'll go through that for a time and then figure out how do you manage that. It's kind of like that Jim Carrey movie when he becomes a god. Exactly. He sets an auto email response. The emails start flooding and he doesn't know how yeah. to handle it. Yeah, that would be a good concept. You know, they alluded to this issue two more times, Chris, during this episode. One, when they speak to the fox and the way he says to her, you're not going to be able to handle... It's harder than you think. Yeah. Yeah, being a god. So that's kind of like a wink-wink. But also when she's speaking to Q in the end and Q's like do you think you'll be able to save my father and she says all of this has happened while there is no magic we don't know what's going to happen when magic is turned back on Mm -hmm. maybe when that's the case she won't have that much power just it's just a rule or something you know it just goes away I don't know if I see that being the case because we have all these minor gods who did have that power while magic was on now was it at this level I don't know but maybe As she says, that's because they didn't do the right things to keep leveling that up. They Mm -hmm. weren't interested in in healing people and doing the stuff she's trying to do. Well, then Q goes to speak with Alice. He questions her on the siphon and what it does. So the siphon diverts magic to the library so that they can choose who can use it? Why should the library get to choose? They're corrupt. They're killers. Yes, so are we. And at least they have information and perspective. But Q thinks she's only doing this because she feels guilty and afraid. 
taking away choice is not the answer. They will do the quest without her unless she gives them the siphon. So this is him again just trying to take back charge, take control. I didn't mind this though. Well, I like the realness of what's going on between them. The fact that he is so laser focused on this. At times he doesn't think about what that could mean. That's where she tried to slow him down and say there's consequences. There's big picture things that maybe you don't always see. And she's mean in the way she does it. But she reminds him of his father, you know, that his cancer will come back when that comes back. And I don't know, maybe he didn't even think about that until now. Yeah, but it pissed me off when she said it because she does that as uh, getting the last word and walking away. Like, that was very rude. See, I don't think that's what she was about. She she knows the way that he thinks sometimes. And she had to kind of break him out of that pattern and force him to see things from a different perspective. Have you really thought about all of this? And the answer is no, ultimately, that he didn't. I think that at the heart of it, she does care about his father. You know, she, she is thinking about those things. Well, Q brings up what he believes her point of view is. Maybe she's not thinking about it, is that she's acting emotionally off of knowing the way she was acting when she had so much power, and she doesn't trust herself having that power again, never mind strangers and other people. I think that's a good point, Um, and Alice doesn't always handle things the right way, but again, I don't know that it's wholly emotional or just she has gotten that perspective. None of them know what it's like to be a creature such as a Niffin, and have that extraordinary amount of power and how easy it is to do the wrong thing. She can bring that to the table and uh, sort of make them sit down and think about that. This is what you could ultimately be giving and dealing with. What is your plan for that? You know, maybe the library's plan isn't great, but so then what do you think we should do about it? You know, and the group hasn't sat down and talked about that. They haven't thought about that. They do sometimes need to get on the same page before they just start acting rashly. This has put them in bad spots in the past that they're so impulsive uh, with how they handle things. Back over to Fillory, Josh says that their ratings are up. After the trees, Julia went on to grow food for the starving people, fix the wells, and even cured a case of lice. (laughs) But Tick's campaign is not going so well. Abigail says the Florian people don't know what he stands for, as his time as king was so brief. So he decides to tell them his whole plan. His policy to restore economic and societal growth to a reunified Fillory. So again, this was funny, coming from analogies to our world politics. (laughs) People that try to say, oh, this is what I'm going to do in a very orderly manner, and I'm actually trying to help in this way and that, and everyone else is like, okay, boring, snooze fest. (laughs) We want to hear stuff that Elliot's saying. Florians will receive 10 free sacks of green every year. No interest on their loans. The first power plant will be opened up. In fact, we're going to extend summer itself. (laughs) Uh, But that's dangerous. He says all we have to do is say it, even if it's not true. Another wink-wink to what happened What's been happening in politics these days. Yeah, but another serious not Elliot move. I don't believe for a second that Elliot would do that, even in his attempt to win this election. Well, I think he got carried away in it. I I agree, but didn't that seem a bit out of character? Yeah, he's not that grandiose anymore. Maybe back in the day. He's come so far and learned so much. I, I felt like they got a little carried away with trying to make some commentary and they lost sight of that for a second. I dig it, but to be honest with you, I enjoyed that. It was funny. Well, exactly. They knew it would be. Yeah. And I do want to point out the fact that Tick 
that first scene, you saw that before there was even campaigning, he legit had all these plans that he was working on on the table. He was trying. So he's not a bad man. Again, what he thought was for the good, to get rid of the humans. I mean, he, he didn't have to kill him, but... Uh, <laughs> or try to kill him, he's not an all-righteous ruler who just wants to rule. He actually wants to, Fillory to do well. Yeah, he had ideas for how he could better things. Which I'm glad the crew knew, or picked up on, and that's why he's still part of the cabinet. But of course, when Elliot got carried away, he had to get carried away too. This is how these things oh, yeah. get out of hand. And so he wound up releasing the transcript from Elliot's trial where he badmouthed the Florians. And that was a real blow. Yeah, he started the smear campaign. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that in a second. We have one more scene over with Julia, Katie, and Penny, where they tell Julia they need help finding Reynard. And she is able to locate him because she can feel him with her mind. <laughs> and she takes them there to where he is now delivering pizzas and says he's changed from living among humans. It's given him a new perspective, but they don't buy that for a second. They think he's a liar. He's a trickster. Mm-hmm. And they just want to know what's inside the castle at the end of the world. And he does actually share there's a reason the gods had the architect put it there. You want the truth about the castle? The castle's where the gods put the stuff they made before us, the stuff that didn't work out, mistakes that never should have happened, kind of like you. I hope you do go. Open that door. See what happens. But he is up to no good. No sooner does he say that than he pulls a gun that contains the God-killing bullet Julia and Katie made to use against him. I forgot about that bullet. Me too. Another example of how the magicians always comes back around to these points. Reynard tells us Persephone left him there to rot, but his stepfather Hades took pity on him and left the bullet there for him to shoot himself in case of emergency. This gives Julia an idea. She thinks the bullet will work on whatever the monster is inside of the castle. So they take it, thinking, job well done, they're ready to leave, and Penny stops them. He can't believe the girls aren't going to kill Reynard, even though Katie says this is his punishment, leaving him here. I think that's definitely a seed implanted for later that Penny... 23 will wind up coming back around to have it out with Reynard. Yeah, I don't know if it's a personal thing uh, with this, with Reynard 23. This is Reynard 40, but I mean, as far as this penny is concerned, uh, I'm not too sure that it's actually about Reynard. I think it's just giving us a glimpse of what this penny is like. He's going to be ruthless. Oh, I think it's a for sure, a foreshadowing. I think he didn't like Reynard because he knew that he did bad things to both Katie and Julia, but he doesn't know the extent of it. So far as we know, he doesn't know the, the whole gory details about how he raped Julia yeah. and, and everything else. I think if he finds that out, there is no stopping him from going to kill Reynard. Let's talk about the fact that Julia showed such restraint. She could have just killed him right there, but instead she just froze him, got the information she needed. And left. And I love the fact that Katie, her answer to Penny was, yeah, of course, I wanted the worst things to happen to him. I wanted to kill him. But this is this exactly is the worst, the worst thing. thing that could <laughs> yeah. to him. This, this is his uh, worst punishment, having to live with no power. But I am worried that they recognized from the beginning, even without his God powers, he's still dangerous. Oh, yeah. Having him out there in the world is still a problem. And I don't think we've seen the last of it. So now, back to Fillory, where Rafe tells Tick the election results are in, Elliot lost. But Tick also lost. The new High King is Margot. 
The talking animals wrote her in. She was the only human who stopped to listen to them. And as Humble Drum is a highly respected member of the community, he felt there were certain taboo subjects she broached with him that were very important. If allowed to intermarry with humans, humans will see the creatures as their equals. And because they never had the election, they didn't know these numbers we talked about before, that it is way more talking animals than humans there. This is a silent majority that finally, given the voice, have swayed the election to pick a leader they think understands their world and will rule them better. At this point, Rafe swears loyalty to the new administration. Margot apologizes to Elliot, but he kneels to her, and Margot takes the throne. Elliot tells Tick they aren't executing him. In fact, he will be a member of Margot's cabinet, though with a full 24-hour security detail to watch him because they don't trust him. So they wrap this up pretty quickly, kind of put a nice little bow on it. You know, there were these issues with Elliot and Margot, but they have moved past it. They have come to this new democratic rulership that they're going to have and try to be good leaders. Not only that, they are even at peace with the fairies. The fairy queen tells Margot they will get the key as soon as all the fairies have been moved to their new home. And she says, I always saw something in you, even when you didn't see it in yourself, which is when she gives her a new eye. And I knew immediately it was a fairy eye. I was so excited about that. She says it's a gift Margot will learn to understand in time. And I wonder what she's going to be able to do with this. Me too. It's, it's a gift we'll understand in time. She sees something. She sees so many colors. She says something. What does she say? I see so much yeah. or something like that. I'm very curious. But I'm going to miss Margot's eye patches. They were so cool. You know, they added so much character. Uh, I, I grew to love Margot with eye patches. I agree. But I, I love symbolically what this says that not only did Margot get on the level that she could understand Fillory better than any of them, the talking creatures, what life is like there, she also was able to understand the fairies so well that the queen is actually making her a part of them. She has a fairy eye now, so in some way she is almost part fairy. Hmm. And it's like Margot is truly becoming part of this world more than our other characters. This is her Fillory. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the fact that we got Margot and the Queen on the same side. I was really worried. Reconciling, yeah. yeah. for a couple episodes because she wasn't part of that whole storyline, you know? I also think there could be some scary foreshadowing happening at the end there, though, because the Queen says she's going to hide it in plain sight to make it look like a regular eye. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the fairies are going to continue to be persecuted and it's something later that Margot won't be recognized as one of them quote unquote because they can't see that she has a fairy eye um i don't know i don't know if they'll go that far because that would take a lot of scenes to set up but what about the fact that why else would she need to hide it why would they make a point of showing that to us if the fairies are moving to fillery and everybody's going to accept them who are we hiding that from Uh, i don't know but also remember every gift that the fairy gave Margot before was a spying gift. So now... Yeah, but she wasn't really trying to gift her before. She was messing right. with her. But do you think the fairy, with how long she's lived, with everything she's gone through, could just completely trusts her now? Or does she have at least the ability, like an IP camera, to just log in every so often and see what she's up to? Maybe, but I, I do think, like I said before, that all of those things were tests, that she did see something in Margot and she wanted to prove that to herself, to know if it was true yeah. and that Margot deserved it. And Margot has finally gotten to the point where she gained the fairy queen's trust. It's not an easy thing. Mm. 
After everything the fairies have been through, how wary they are of humans. But now she's one of them. She can be trusted. And this is a real gift. Yeah. And let's remember the first time we saw that happening, which was when Margot was tasked with letting uh, the Munjack get uh, raped, essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, and we saw that it touched the queen in a way. Yeah. So that was the start of that. But also we can't forget what the fairy queen said last episode. There's going to be repercussions to her breaking that deal yes. with the humans. So that's another issue that could come into play in the future. That's what I mean. I, I think there's going to be a lot more unraveling of this fairy stuff. I, I don't think it's all... Hunky-dory now? Yeah. Then Katie picks up the unity key. She hears everyone talking... They're excited that they got the last key. It's working. She realizes the key has replaced her penny with penny 23. Very sad moment for Katie. I'm not looking that deeply into that as replacement. I think the key joins the people who need to be joined at that moment. And right now, this penny needs to be walkie-talkied. I think it shows, like you said... The deal he made with them, agreeing to stay in the library, eating that cupcake, yeah. forsaking his friends and everything he had going on there, he made the decision to change his fate and he's no longer part of that yeah. group. Yeah. And the key knows that. Well, and finally we get chapter eight, the end of the story, although we don't actually get to hear it read out yet. Q is questioning, you know, the quest was supposed to change them. He thought when he got there, he'd be sure they were doing the right thing. But as Julia says, now that he's here, he doesn't. A big part of that's about his father. And she admits she doesn't know if she'll be able to help him when magic returns. So Q goes to visit his father. And he tells him it's all real. The whole Fillory story. He's been on a quest and he has a difficult decision to make. His father thinks at first he's there seeking permission Mm. to go through with what he needs to. He says that even though he's not a magician, he could feel it when magic left the world and knew what was happening when he went into remission weeks later. So, yeah, this is what we brought up earlier in the podcast. What does that mean? He's not a magician. He doesn't have magic, but he has the ability to feel magic. Is this a case of, you know, generation skip? You know, you don't have the power, but your son could have the power. It's in your genes. Or are we just thinking too deeply into that? We don't know anything about Q's mom. Is Q's mom a magician or someone magical? They never talked about really where she came from or maybe even his father has some of that like you said and he just never knew it before we've seen that it's very selective even lots of people that have magic don't get accepted into break bills don't wind up following down that route and what happens to them they never they never cultivate it yeah you might be right on our twitter at ckc podcast a lot of our clatchers had a really good conversation about that and one of the things they were wondering is why did the father believe q so easily. And a number of circumstances, we were saying the fact that he felt magic and maybe he does have some magic in him or there's something there, a seed. The biggest indicator is that the only time we've ever seen somebody's sickness go away because of no magic is when the cause of it is magical, such as what happened with Penny. It makes no sense if it's normal human illness, why that would affect it. So when we brought that up, at Forbidden Faith wrote to us and said, do we even ever hear of his mama? If not, does anyone think she has something to do with his father believing and accepting so easily? And that's the question. So let's say maybe he doesn't, maybe he's not a magician or has a seed of magicianism, magicianism, Uh, and it was the mother. But he knows because of his wife... That it's real. That it's real. Yeah, he's. I think there's been another scene 
with Ted Coldwater before, where he was kind of more understanding of his son. It's like he got something that even Quentin hadn't fully figured out for himself yet. But this is where we get the grown-up moment for Q, which I really enjoyed because we were saying he lived a whole life, him and Elliot. So they should be more knowledgeable at this point, or at least more seasoned in their ideas and their ways of thinking. Or at least to make mention of it. It was almost like they dropped it and forgot about it. Where here we see that he didn't. He tells his father he wanted to look him in the eye and apologize that he made the decision. He is going to bring magic back. And he doesn't know what will happen then. But he also explains the whole life that he lived there, the fact that he had a child. And that's what his father really wants to hear about at the end of the day. He cares about his son and what his son's been going through. Yeah, what was his name? Very touching moment, a really great ending with Curly Q. And this brings up another question, which I think is very fun to think about. Jason Ralph brought this question up. What's more selfish, to turn on magic and sacrifice his father, or to not turn on magic to keep his father alive? Because they're both could be deemed as selfish. What is more selfish? You could say not turning on magic is unselfish because magic means so much to Quentin and he's always cared about it. And it means so, so much, much to other people. That it would be a personal well, not turning it back on oh, I see. would be a personal sacrifice. He would have to live without it, but his father would still get to be alive. But I think that obviously the bigger thing is everybody else needs it back. You know, it's it's not just about him, it's about the whole world wants magic back. So how selfish would it be if for his own personal reasons, even if it is his father and he does die, which is horribly tragic, he can't deny everybody else that magic. Right. That's kind of what the library was trying to do that he's so against. We can't pick and choose. I can't pick and choose. It's not my decision to say because he would die. We have to deny that to everybody. I have to bring it back. And whatever the consequences are, we have to deal with that, which is a very adult decision to make. As you mm -hmm. said, it does show a lot of growth for Quentin. So that wraps up the episode. But as we said, leaves us with so many questions coming into our season finale. What's in the castle that God's created? What was here before us and why didn't it work? What's happening with our Penny 40? In the underworld and with the library, where do we fall on the whole library argument? Do we agree with Quentin or Alice about bringing magic back? What's going to happen with Reynard? Will Penny 23 wind up going back there? What will Margot's new eye be able to do for her or for them? Can we fully trust the fairies now? What is Irene up to? Where are Harriet and Victoria? Where is Poppy? <laughs> we kind of stopped asking that one a little while ago. Where is Marina? There's so much yeah. that we have to come back to in this finale or at least set up the cliffhangers for next season. And before we get into our rating, we want to thank some of our Clatchers. First, we want to thank Jessica for joining our Patreon CKC family. Thank you so much for joining. You'll be entered in this month's pool for the free CKC gear giveaway and enjoy all those bonus podcasts. Remember, if you want to join, it's never too late. You get so much extra content from us. And you know that you're helping Christine and myself out. And speaking of grading, we got two new reviews for our Magicians podcast channel from Bichard and Annaliques. Sorry if I mispronounced those, but we did read what you wrote on the review. So many kind words. They mean the world to us. Christina and I sacrifice a lot to do these podcasts, and it feels good to know that there's people on the other end enjoying what we do. 
Speaking of enjoying what we do, Christina, how many keys do you give this episode? I'm going to give it a 9.3, which is the same rating I gave for the episode one opener and the six short stories about magic episodes, because I think that's right in line with how much I enjoyed it. It feels very similar to the episode one, like we came all the way back around and we're wrapping up everything they set up for us with the initial tale of seven keys and now we have them all and we're finishing up the adventure. I think there's still a lot of excitement to come. If this was the season finale, I would be a bit disappointed, but I think they're going to get to all of that fun in the next episode. Well, Chris, I mirror everything that you've said. And I'd like to add the fact that we got some wins this time. In The Magicians, we don't often get too many wins for the good guy's side. And for that reason, I'm giving this episode 9.4 keys. And with that, let's head on over to our MVM for the episode. Every week, we ask our Clatchers on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, what their MVM is. And we always put up a poll with at least four characters. This week, I'm surprised we still get so many votes because we had to put it up a day later, because during this week's airing, I was in the air at the airport or on a plane, and Christina was on her way to pick me up. So we thank you so much for sticking with us and being involved, even when we were a little late. So this week, we gave you Margot, Julia, Penny, and Josh. With an honorary write-in for Quentin. Coming in fourth, with zero votes, was Penny23. Yeah, we knew it wouldn't get too many votes. One, he hasn't proven who he is to us yet. You ain't our penny. But, <laughs> but He hasn't, but he had a lot of accomplishments in this episode. Exactly. Um, regardless of where the motivations came from. Yeah, we wanted to put him in. I mean, he was the one that was able to spy and let the crew know what Alice was up to. He also came up with the idea of going to Reynard to find out about the castle at the end of the world. And coming in at third place with 3%, Josh. Again, I think he was very pivotal. He really got the ball rolling with how to get us humans on the good side of the Florians. Even though the outcome wasn't what Josh was going for, which was Elliot, I think it definitely played in their favor because, in essence, Margot was part of the humans as well. And Josh getting the word out, setting up the ads, and getting Julia involved, it was very pivotal. Yeah, well, he kept saying children of Earth. I mean, it really wasn't for any of them solely about Elliot. They were forced from the beginning to have a high king, but they really saw it as the whole group of the four of them ruling and working together. Coming in second with 38% was Julia. She keeps racking in those votes. (laughs) Well, I don't think we need to say for all of the obvious reasons, the things that Julia keeps doing and the power she keeps obtaining, she's definitely probably going to be an MVM nominee till the end of the season. I love how you said definitely probably. Well, barring any (laughs) huge changes in the season finale. And first place this week by our Clatchers, with 59% Margot. Yeah, I knew she would do well. I didn't know up against Julia she would get this big of a vote percentage, but I'm really happy that she did. She got her eye back. She got her kingdom back. and She She brought the fairies into the fold despite her feelings about that. She proved she cares. She's a woman of power. And I think that there's going to be a lot still to come with Margot as a ruler. And thank you so much for all the comments that you guys gave us in this poll. Along the lines of what we were just saying... Mara wrote in to say, I just started rewatching season one and Margot really doesn't get enough credit for how far she's come. She's not the party girl anymore, but a queen who sacrificed and bled for a country who overthrew her. Her face while taking back the throne had me smiling with pride. Long live King Margot. <laughs> 
And I really like that they still gave her the title High King instead of High Queen. (laughs) Juliet wrote, I wish I could vote for both Margot and Julia. I'm with her on that one. Mm. They were both responsible for Margot becoming king, which was the best thing that happened in this episode. I want to run through the streets in celebration, shouting, Margot is king! Margot is king! Oh, Jason, I didn't see your comment on that till now. If you do it, please film it. Oh, and wear an eye patch. (laughs) (laughs) Amir said, I'm still trying to follow with your rule, Christina, but I have to choose Julia again. She's amazing, and Stella Maeve's acting in this episode was perfect. Thank God, Julia. And Brian coming in with, most other episodes this season, the MVM has been the unsuspecting person that got the key. So... Margot for me this time around. Now, if we were talking character development and not a character that has helped progress the plot the best, then Julia. Katie and Q should be in the conversation. Also, love how self-aware the show is. From the cold open with Josh to Margot's one-liner in the boat. This show just keeps getting better and better in many levels. Yeah, we mirror those sentiments exactly. John says has to be Culia again. If she hears prayers from strangers and heals the sick grows thousands of new plants to sustain life for a people, how can you not vote for her? Well, and that's what we said. It's going to be really hard if she keeps going up like this to not have her every episode. (laughs) I know my rule is becoming harder and harder to follow. Also, Brian says, Julia has literally become a God-level magician. She's answering prayers. She rebuilt a forest in less than five minutes. She went around helping the people of Fillory. All Margot did was talk to a bear. Sorry, but like I said last time, good guy gets the MVM. Oh Hmm. boy, well, I definitely agree that Julia did a lot, but to be fair, Margot and every other character in the story does not have magic. Julia Hmm. is able to do these amazing things because she has a high level of magic. Maybe our other characters could be doing that level of stuff. It's kind of incredible they can do so much without that. Yeah. And like we said, I don't think it was just about what Margot did in this episode, in which case I would agree with you. She had this five-second conversation with Humbledrum. That was more of a representation of everything she's done all season and how much she cares about and believes in Fillory and really wants to rule and help it. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to end this episode with. So you stole it from me. Thanks, Brian. (laughs) Just kidding. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but that takes me into my MVM because for all of those reasons, I do give it to Margot. Yeah, I was back and forth. Margot or Julia, Margot or Julia. And I'm going to go with Julia this time again. Third Julia in a row. Well. I'm not going to let you do it for the finale. You ain't my Just so you know. (laughs) By the way, uh, those were two different Brian's. So thank you guys. Oh, yes. Brian with an I and Brian with a Y. Brian 23 and Brian 40. (laughs) Oh, guys, this has been a journey. And this brings us to the conclusion of this episode. We want to remind you that if you are buying stuff on Amazon, be a pal and use our Amazon link. Remember, it doesn't cost you any money. It just makes Amazon pay us a little bit. Just go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, find that link, and clickety-click. Oh, by the way, I guess nobody did a write-in for Quentin as honorary. So they agreed with me he didn't do enough this time. (laughs) We also got an email write-in from Lewis, who said, I get the sense they brought Penny 23 in for the purpose of having a body for our Penny to come back to. I'm guessing Penny 23 will sacrifice himself for Julia and die, leaving the chance for our Penny to come back. Hmm, Hmm. I never thought about that. Yeah, I like that, and I would be totally on board with that if he didn't eat that. I know. I don't think there's any way he gets out of that, but it's a good thought. Very good. And you know what? 
you may be right. And if you are, we'll make sure to shout you out. Maybe that's a loophole in some way. Well, the magicians is good at giving us loopholes (laughs) and making us believe it. We never go. Yeah. Uh, He also says, I know you guys might not think Cassandra is Alice 23, but for some reason I still see a connection there. I did think. Oh, well, Lewis, I I believe we thought it may be. Actually, I'm trying to remember last episode. We were saying that it's a possibility. It's a it's a good one. I think we also brought up that it could have been Alice from a totally other timeline, right. not twenty three or forty. But um, she made a deal, but we, in some way that we see Alice right now making a deal, and I think that's what we spoke more about: the current Alice forty getting in deep, and then fast forward to she's stuck with the library. Yeah, I mean that's that was one of the possibilities. But if you remember. Alice 23 was saying she made a deal with a being, a very strong being, to mm-hmm. get Quentin back. So we don't know who that being was. Mm. That's true. That's a good point. He also says the last episode seemed a bit rushed for me. The election and fairy storyline seemed to be moving very fast. I expected Margot to still have a grudge for the fairy queen, but I understand they only have one episode left. I expect some drama to happen still between Margot and Elliot next season over the crown. I think we kind of said the same thing, that there were certain areas that they did have to kind of fast forward a bit to get us to the finale. (laughs) I like that he finishes, this season has been a fun ride, although I don't get why Christina hates Q so much. (laughs) LOL. You know what I think it is? And at times I do. Um, Lewis, I'm not sure if you've read the books, but if not, I strongly recommend that you check out the Magician's books. And And use our Audible link. (laughs) <laughs> forward slash CKC. <laughs> he is very difficult to like in the books. Uh, the TV Quentin is way more likable, much the way Penny on TV is way more likable than book Penny. And I think having read them so many years ago, I have these preformed ideas of them in my mind. And there are certain things that TV Quentin does that bring me back to that. And it gets me really aggravated. <laughs> But I, you know, aggravated as a character, but I think that's the point. I think that's what Lev was trying to do. I think the TV plays around with that idea that he's supposed to be our protagonist, but it's not like every other story where he's the hero. And there are plenty of times where he's not even likable, where he messes up, he does human things, he doesn't know his role in the world, he gets caught in his own crap in his own head. And I think they're trying to make it more realistic with somebody like that being the main character of our story. So in that sense, I very much appreciate how they put him into the storyline. And with that being said, it is now time to speak a little bit about the next episode. So if you're afraid of spoilers, now's the time to go. We'll see you next week. And for everyone still here, we got a preview for our next episode, the season finale, episode 13, Will You Play With Me? The synopsis says the group finds what they're looking for in an attempt once and for all to get magic back. Well, we get a huge bomb unless Mm. they're totally leading us astray with the preview that Dean Fogg tells the librarian, we need to talk about our arrangement. Oh, what does that mean? The Dean is in with the library? Oh. I don't know. I'm hoping that it is a little bait and switch just to get us on tilt before the next episode. Yeah, but I could see where they get to a place that maybe he was. Hmm. We also hear them say what's locked inside that castle can never be let out. The Munchak is flying over volcano-looking mountains. There's lava coming out. And Katie's yelling at someone, I think it was Irene, saying you don't get to decide that all humans can't have magic. Yeah, and if you remember, Irene 
is one of those rich fairy slave owners who survived and she failed. is the rich fairy slave. She was the head. Well, yeah, she was the head one, yeah, and she she bounced, and we said, oh, she might be uh, someone to worry about. And now also the one we think that was supplying, as we had kind of guessed that she was, that that's where the library was getting that stuff from. Um, But we know now apparently to power up the siphon. And so I don't know if they told her and made a deal that she would be one of the ones that got it eventually when it came back, if she did this for them. Oh, wait, maybe. And that might be the deal Dean Fogg was talking about. We had an arrangement. We get the magic. Mm. Maybe Dean Fogg was part of it. And the school was part of it or something, you know? Could be. Oh, so much to find out. I could see, because this show is not afraid to go dark, that that could be a road we're exploring. So that will be our season finale. And don't forget, that's not the end of us. We'll also be doing Westworld a week after. Coming up very soon. So don't forget, we get the exciting season two. So if you're into that, you can go back and check out all of our season one coverage. And we also did a bonus at the end with our guest, Roger Roper, where we discussed the season in its entirety. It's a good way to refresh if you've forgotten the specifics. And we still have one more week of magic left. Until next week, this round's on me. Can I maybe get some fairy toes? Hello? This round is on me. Try again.